I think Iger 2.0 is the revenge tour against the Bob Chapek brief era. Iger is here to make smart, cutthroat business decisions that are entirely unromantic. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, February 13th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discussed Disney's earnings call last week, in which Bob Iger announced a major restructuring, big financial cuts, and 7,000 layoffs. So what's Iger's game plan here? We also discuss a healthy earnings call from the New York Times and Penske Media taking a big stake in Vox. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's great because it's Media Monday. I'm joined <laughs> today by John Kelly, who makes every Monday just really wonderful. Everyone loves Mondays now because of us. John, how are you, man? I'm good, man. You know, we're finally getting the first signs here in the frigid Northeast that the groundhog may actually have meant to not see his shadow. It's like 60 degrees around here. So um, that's Peter Hamby weather. Really springtime lovely. Spring is also happening in February in Los Angeles. So it's a lot different. Hey, John, I want to talk to you about a couple earnings calls. And later, I want to get into some nip and tuck action over at Vox Media. But the couple interesting earnings calls last week, the big one uh, was Disney, obviously. This is Bob Iger's first earnings call since coming back into power over there. They are cutting $5.5 billion from the company and shedding 7,000 jobs. Obviously, we've talked a lot on this podcast and we've written about it a ton at Puck that these are sort of dark days for tech and media. I guess some of the layoffs and restructuring make sense given the shape of the markets, etc. But I'm curious like what this says to you specifically about Bob Iger and his vision and what he's trying to do uh, now that he's back uh, behind the steering wheel there. I've been thinking a lot about this. It absolutely has been sort of a, uh, it's taken on like showdown uh, resonance. You know, most of Disney's earnings, which were successful, were baked in by the time Iger 
came back into the saddle around Thanksgiving. And Uh Iger certainly was forced to confront Nelson Peltz, the activist investor, the incredibly successful and actually only sort of mildly ornery given given how uh, the antics of of what counts as activism these days. We really have to find a better euphemism for uh, what these hedge fund executives do. That was his first challenge. And I think that Iger very elegantly sort of uh, had swatted him aside and was able to fend off a proxy battle here by making necessary budget decisions and uh, rolling up all of Disney's studios and entertainment streaming service into one unified media division, which creates redundancies. And and that's where you get the the 5 billion and the 7,000 that you mentioned. And again, we're we're living in an economic moment Mm -hmm. where every enormous company is laying off thousands of people. That's always a a painful process. Um, Painful is usually the euphemism for uh, how economists describe this. But also we have to remember that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs were added during COVID. So I think that there actually is a, a corrective thing taking place. So That's the kind of baseline that I think a lot of people are chewing over. But I tend to think that this part was all predictable. Iger did enough Mm -hmm. to move forward. He did enough to to recast Disney as as a creative company. He did enough to to push Peltz to the side. Peltz is going to make money, which at the end of the day is is what Tryon wants. But here are the big things that I think we're beginning to just uh, recognize now. The first is that I tend to like have in my mind a class of CEOs and in some cases companies that are just like on a revenge tour. You know, so when I think of like how Axios was created, to me, it was the Jim Vandehei revenge tour against Politico. DreamWorks was in many ways the sort of <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg revenge tour against Disney. You could go on and on. I think that Iger 2.0 is the revenge tour against the Bob Chapek brief era. And I think that a lot of the romanticism that dotted the circumference around Iger's first 15-year tour as Disney CEO is no longer really part of the equation. Iger is here to make smart, cutthroat business decisions that are entirely unromantic. So yes, he's now said that he's rolled up the entertainment division and it's built around creativity, and that's all well and good. But I think so much is truly on the table. I, I, there are questions now about what's going to happen with Hulu. We don't know any more than we did uh, before the earnings call. It, it's unclear. I think Iger didn't pledge any fealty to it. He said general interest programming is expensive. That could be his way of negotiating with Brian Roberts, whose company Comcast you know, owns a, a, about a 30% of Hulu to, mm-hmm. to get the, the overall number closer to $27 billion than, than $35 billion. Iger said he's holding on to ESPN. For now, people forget that before he was buying Pixar and reading the first draft of Star Wars movies, Bob Iger was Michael Eisner's COO. He was like the head bean counter in charge who was maximizing profitability. And I feel with utter certainty that he is coming in and taking accountability for the size of the $71 million 21st Century Fox deal and all the enormous money that went into funding Hulu. And he is going to slash the shit out of everything that he has to in order to make Disney more profitable and rejuvenate the stock price. Stock price is up 25% since he's been there. Part of that is is just this nose to the Tiffany window glass plate, uh, Wall Street, at, at what Iris done in the past. But I think he's going to ruthlessly uh, make the sort of left brain decisions that he has to jump the stock price. And it's going to be very calculated. It's, it's not going to be uh, with, with big fuzzy mouse ears on. There was one interesting little note in the earnings call, which is the demonstrated the inverse of human behavior from COVID, which is they are having to cut costs around the content side of things. But their their theme park business did $2.1 billion in profit, a jump of 36% from the previous year. So that just demonstrates that people are 
spending a little more time maybe in the real world than they were the last few years and a little bit less time with their screens. I had a question about ESPN. Both of us are obviously lifelong, avid ESPN consumers. As part of this restructuring, Iger said that uh, ESPN and its streaming offshoot, ESPN Plus, mm-hmm. will become a standalone unit for the first time. ESPN president James Pitaro will run both of them, I guess. But what does that look like practically? Like, can you just walk me through what that means? Uh, is it that sure. there's, in my mind, I feel like there's like multiple ESPN streaming things. Like I subscribe to ESPN on my Samsung TV, but I was trying to watch Cincinnati basketball game the other night and I had to pay for ESPN plus. It was just like, it's, it's a little confusing. So maybe that's the whole point. Well, one thing Iger said on the call was that spinning off ESPN had been a decision point that had been pondered under the Chapek era and, and news uh, broken by our pal Dylan Byers, uh, even though Disney denied it uh, relentlessly. But I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear Iger actually confirmed Dylan's reporting on the earnings call. Funny how that happens. It's funny how that happens. Um, but what's what's notable to me is that there is a layman's uh, notion that we know live sports is going to have an outsized footprint on streaming. That's already happening. Places, you know, organizations like Amazon are bidding on the NFL and are expected to bid on the NBA. But the challenge that ESPN has is it makes a considerable amount of money on cable carriage fees, which have legal agreements to say that they have to broadcast sports live. It would be a, a breach if ESPN co-broadcast the college football playoffs on ESPN ABC and Disney Plus, the Disney Plus bundle, right? So these are agreements that are going to take years to sort out. And the change that Iger is managing, quite literally, and this won't be his problem because he, he, I think he'll be out in, in two or three years, as, as um, he suggests, and, and this will be on the next CEO and on, and on Pataro to figure out. How do you manage that transition so that you don't cut off your nose to spite your face? How do you continue to make ESPN as valuable and profitable on a linear uh, on the linear side of the business as it can be profitable or, or at least maximize revenue in the short, medium, and then, of course, longer term across ESPN+. Plus. I think siloing it off into its own division or organization at least plays lip service to the notion that those are intense decisions that have to be figured out on an ESPN by ESPN basis. How do you continue to maintain linear while moving to the kind of plus component? And by the way, this is like, I think, a much more credible version of what CNN contemplated under Jeff Zucker um, and then uh, had aborted. Um, but I, I actually think that few people really believe that CNN Plus was going to work. I think everyone believes that if ESPN can manage the transition of live sports viewing and carriage fees to streaming, then there's real value there. But the elephant in the room, of course, is that even though Iger says ESPN's not going anywhere, the easiest way to sell an entity of a conglomerate is to uh, siphon it off into its own unit, which makes it much more distinct to sort of disintegrate from the larger entity, because it is actually really hard for huge companies to value pieces of their business because there's so much interconnection and they're so intertwined behind the scenes. So this way, if you have a broken out ESPN P&L and broken out operations teams, it's probably easier if they ever have to countenance that. And I actually kind of believe that Iger doesn't want to do that. Disney's not a family business. He's not the founder, but he's as close as you're going to find outside of Walt Disney. And he loves sports. That is genuine and real. I just can't imagine him wanting to give it up under his tenure. Yes. Uh, Remember, he was thought to maybe pursue the Phoenix Suns when they came on the uh, 
on the market, the new Kevin Durant-led Phoenix Suns. Hey guys, when we come back, I want to ask John about another earnings call at the New York Times. Their business is looking pretty healthy. And then Vox, which is not looking very healthy, actually. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back, everyone. John, last week there was another earnings call at a very different company, the New York Times. Uh, they are fully a subscription business at this point. They made a lot of money. They said in their earnings call that they added more than a million digital subscribers in the year 2022. They have 9.6 million digital subscribers. They shed about, yikes, 70,000 print subscribers. <laughs> Do you think it means anything both editorially for the New York Times and that they are now creating content for their subscribers more than the general audience, the public interest perhaps? And then also like, what does it say about their bottom line? Like, are they, what do you think they're going to like make some more investments in? We obviously follow this company closely because it is near and dear to us. And if you look at a stock chart, you'll see the Times is worth about six and a half billion dollars now. And it's mm. about the size that it was 20 years ago when the New York Times company actually was a conglomerate, not the most elegantly composed conglomerate. It owned uh -huh. uh, some shitty assets like the Boston Red Sox uh, or a, 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 right. small, a small piece of uh, a small piece of, uh, of the Red you. Sox. 
think it might have even been a part of like a REIT that was in the Hancock building, about.com. This really is just a model of shrinking to grow. And then, you know, in the era where newspapers were just under a, a besieged by Google and then by Facebook and by Craigslist and by the Huffington Post and by all these things. It shed all these assets. It took on a ton of debt, paid off the debt, and then realized that there was probably, um, and I've saw, I saw the, the chart, Meredith Cop 11, and, and the team discussed in, in the earnings call, you see the chart go down and to the right and then sharply up and to the right again, along the recognition that the New York Times news product has a fixed TAM, a total addressable market. I don't, I don't know what quite it is, but I'm sure that they have a lot of financial modelers in that business who are are incredibly laser focused on figuring out what is the TAM of the English speaking news audience that's willing to pay. And, and I think the majority of their subscriber audience is paying for the core bundle, the core, the core news bundle. So when the Times decided to regrow their business as a conglomerate, instead of making these haphazard bets in real estate and sports teams and other digital assets that didn't fit their portfolio. And these were, the, of course, the main criticisms of the um, Arthur Salzberger Jr. regime before AG took over. They would forego that sort of crown trophy asset type portfolio and instead invest in things that, that supported the core business and were tangential to it. And that means other media assets like The Athletic, which accounts for a meaningful number, double digit number of the subscribers that they brought on this year. And then all these, these lifestyle products too. And actually, I think that's healthier. Like we've tended to talk on this show in private mm-hmm. about the kind of billionaire era of, of media ownership, which doesn't necessarily make anyone happy five or six years into it. You can talk to a lot of people at the Washington Post. They don't love what it's like to be owned by one person who has no board and, ha- and has no public investors. I, I think that there, there are mixed results at other entities that are controlled exclusively by one shareholder. The Times shows that you can actually, in a public market setting, you can be much more competitive and that the business doesn't rely on the news product. I mean, for years in the you know late, late aughts, early teens, the New York Times was the New York Times company, and now it's not anymore. And I think that is a incredibly positive transition, and it's positive for people who work on the editorial side of the New York Times, who found it a huge distraction. And I know because I was there in the building at the time, it was a huge distraction when we were terrified that the lights were going to be shut off. And I'm like being a little dramatic, but not truly yeah. dramatic. Uh, there were nearly existential fears about what could happen to that company and to that paper. And many of those fears were acted out at Wolfgang's, the steakhouse bar inside the Times building. Um, and I was certainly there for, for many of those. Last thing I want to ask, they did not have an earnings call, but Vox Media announced that Jay Penske was going to invest in them. And as part of that, they're also doing a little bit of a haircut. Penske Media will own like 20% of Vox. They'll be the largest shareholder. Why? Like, what's the point of this investment? I mean, Vox, by the way, feels like one of the digital era success stories. You know, it has in recent years, like they're distributed all over the place. They have all kinds of content and they haven't really suffered a lot of the pains that um, some other digital media companies ad supported have have suffered over the years, last decade at least. Um, Why is Penske going in on Vox? You know, because Fox is private, there, there's a lot that I have to admit we, we don't know. And I talk to people who, who are nearish that company. So 
Uh, but I think only a few people, the board, investors they've talked to, potential exit options, only a few people know what's actually, mm-hmm. you know, what the balance sheet looks like and what the business really looks like. But here is what I do know from, you know, what's been out there. Fox raised capital at a valuation that was, I think, more than a billion dollars in 2015 off of revenue that was uh, north of $100 million, I believe. They recently acquired uh-huh. Now This, the the sort of small media conglomerate that Ben Lair uh, ran mm-hmm. that I think brought in hundreds, I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of, of revenue. And Vox has revenue, according to the Axios story, at least reported on the deal, of $500 million. So it has a valuation that's currently $500 million, uh, which is half of the valuation seven years ago. And it has a valuation that is equal to the revenue. So it's one to one, that's one X. And it needed a new cash infusion to do that. So, you know, I think Fox raised a couple hundred million dollars in 2015. This is another hundred million. It's, it's close to um, having a valuation that's similar to the, the capital in. These are not ideal circumstances. And I agree. I always thought Jim Bankoff was the digital media CEO of that generation. I think that BuzzFeed and Jonah Preddy, in the end, that didn't quite hit the way people thought. Uh, I think the bloom fell off the rose on Vice, but Fox always seemed like it was an incredibly responsibly managed company, mm-hmm. and it was really diligently led. So this deal surprises me. Uh, I, I had read that there were no secondary stakeholders, meaning that no money cashed out on the deal, which is sometimes what happens here, that people, early investors, get antsy, and they want to they get some money out of the business, and so they'll... they'll last money in so the first money goes out but i'm told that's not what happened here so it looks like they're fortifying the balance sheet and i assume that they had to contemplate other options such as selling assets or considering significant cost-cutting mechanisms and they didn't want to do that for reasons that are probably strategic and that they wanted the money and penske got incredible terms for his cash obviously 100 million dollars is a check that very few people can write but if you were writing a $100 million check to own 20%, which is a, getting close to control, right? You're the biggest shareholder, 20% of a company that was worth a billion dollars seven years ago, and you're getting it at half that, that could be an extraordinary wealth creation vehicle. And um, I imagine that this is, to point out to me that this is similar in choreography to how Axios accepted a meaningful Series D from Cox, and then a year or so later, Cox bought them out. I could see why Vox would be just a jet fuel to the Penske Media Corporation. And this may be a ring on the finger, you know, in the, in the first step towards a, a full acquisition in, in a year or two. That, that, that's my half-hearted prediction, but um, it seems like it, I'm not going out on much of a limb by saying it. All right. Those are good predictions. Thanks, boss man. You're always smart on the business stuff. That's why we have you. Oh, this thanks, company, partner. also on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, buddy. Good seeing you as always. All right, man. Have a good week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.